SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Camaragal people and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, I'm your host, Nairi Pakai, and welcome to NITV Radio for this Friday, 5th, January 2024. Coming up on today's show, NITV speaks with the newest board member of Aurora Education Foundation, Sharon Davis, previously working as the Director of Education at AATSIS, an Oxford Scholar and Honorary Research Fellow. They share with NITV the next step. And... We share some stories from NITV news team from the Summer Yarn series, revisiting deadly stories from 2023. All these stories and more coming to you after the weekly news wrap-up. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. The end of unsustainable commercial logging in Western Australia could save almost 20,000 square kilometres of forest, the state government says. Chopping down native kari, jara and wandu hardwood in the state's southwest and selling it is banned from Monday this week. Under the new forest management plan 2024 to 2033, native timbers can only be felled for ecological thinning to enhance forest health and resilience from drought and bushfires. The government has invested $350 million into Western Australia's softwood pine plantations to supply construction industry with timber. The Australian Defence Force has sent out into southeast Queensland to help with the recovery from storms and heavy rain. The Federal Emergency Management Minister, Murray Watt, has confirmed 120 personnel have head down to the Gold Coast, Scenic Rim and Logan from Thursday. The assistance comes amid ongoing flood warnings in the state's Capricornia and southeast coast regions, with heavy rainfall also forecast for Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast. Really the reason for activating ADF personnel now is that while Queensland had access both internally and through other states to a range of resources leading up to now, the compounding effect of this heavy rainfall and flooding on the damage that we'd already seen with the storms meant that, uh, frankly, Queensland did need a bit of a hand with extra resources uh, and uh, they were brave enough to ask and we we were happy to deliver with that uh, support as well. Authorities are reminding residents that the risk of flash flooding across south-east Queensland remains high and have urged people in affected areas to stay off the roads. Mr Watt has also said the government will continue to monitor heavy rain and storms in New South Wales in the Northern Rivers region. 
Court Systems Victoria, CSV, has apologised for any distress caused by the cyber attack on audiovisual technology network used in the state's courts and tribunals. The breach occurred between the 1st of November and the 21st of December and involves unauthorised access to saved files on the network, including video, audio recordings and transcripts. In a statement, CEO Louise Anderson says Court Services Victoria acknowledges the incident will be upsetting for those involved in hearings during the time. However, she notes that almost all court and tribunal hearings are held in public and are not confidential. CSV says no other systems or personal records were accessed. Victoria Premier Ben Carroll has told ABC News the government is working to identify the source of the attack. I understand court operations have not been affected. I understand that this attack has been essentially confined and uh, all court cases, uh, all hearings, uh, all evidence, all procedure is uh, being th- is thoroughly protected and uh, we're very confident that we'll get to the bottom of it. The arrival of the new year brings with it a number of new laws, regulations and benefits for several people across the country. Almost a million Australians receiving youth, student and carer support are set to receive a 6% boost from January 1st, 2024. Youth allowance is increasing between $22 and $45 a fortnight, along with disability support pension. Meanwhile, prescription prices covered under the pharmaceutical benefits scheme are dropping, with the maximum cost for general patients falling 29% down to $30. Despite new measures, the there are some, such as the CEO of the Australian Council of Social Services, Cassandra Goldie, who says it simply isn't enough. Look, every dollar will help people who are severely financially distressed, but we need a much bigger package of relief for people on low incomes. We should be cancelling those stage three tax cuts. Uh, We cannot afford them. We need those dollars to be going to people who really need them, not people on the highest incomes in the country. Multiple states and territories are set to swelter in the new year as a heat wave grips much of Northern Australia. Parts of Queensland and Northern Territory and Western Australia have been put on high alert with temperatures forecast to be 8 to 12 degrees Celsius above average. The Bureau of Meteorology issued a heat warning to Northern Territory, Queensland and Western Australia, while the South faces milder weather. An extreme heat wave warning in place for Northern Territory's Tiwi District and Kimberley, Pilbara and North Interior Districts in Western Australia. Temperatures in remote towns Marble Bar and Roeburn in northwest of WA were expected to reach 48 degrees earlier this week. Most towns in Northern Territory's Barclay region were expected to tip the 40-degree mark. The United Nations projects, uh, projects rising rental prices are likely to limit progress on inflation in Australia this year. The intergovernmental organisation has inflation falling fairly gradually in New South in Australia and New Zealand over the next 12 months, with competitive rental markets largely responsible for the sluggish progress. 
the UN's 2024 World Economic Situation and Prospects report said inflation is projected to remain relatively high in Australia and New Zealand in 2024 due to acceleration in rental prices driven by housing supply shortages. Australia's consumer price inflation is tipped to ease to 3.3% in 2023, according to the UN's forecast before sinking to 3% in 2025. Annually, Australia's inflation grew 5.4% through September quarter, down from 6% in the June quarter. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says 12 Australians who were on board a Japan Airlines flight that collided with a Coast Guard aircraft and burst into flames are safe and accounted for. All 379 people on board the flight escaped the burning airline after the collision at Tokyo's Haneda Airport, although five of the six crew on the smaller plane died in the incident. The smaller Coast Guard plane was heading to Nagata Airport on the Japanese west coast to deliver aid following the devastating earthquake which struck the region on New Year's Day. Prime Minister Albanese says the aircraft collision was tragic, but all Australians involved escaped uninjured. Tragically, there was a a plane crash at Haneda Airport uh, in Tokyo. Uh, We understand that there were 12 Australians on board that Japan Airlines flight, but all of those people are safe and accounted for. However, any Australians in need of emergency consular assistance should contact the Australian Government's 24-hour consular emergency centre. Home buyers struck in, stuck in limbo due to unfinished houses have been thrown a lifeline in Western Australian government loans to help struggling builders complete projects. The $10 million program will provide interest-free loans of up to $300,000 for WA builders with houses that have been under construction for more than two years. State Treasurer Rita Stafford Staffiotti says this program aims to help those who bought a house but aren't in a position to live in it due to high building costs. This is all about making sure homeowners have the ability to move into a home that they've purchased or they've been building for a number of years. It's targeted for those homes that have started more than two years ago. So as we said, we believe there are hundreds of these types of homes that are out there where they're in a stalemate with the builder. The builder doesn't have the ability to finish those projects and we've support, we're creating a new facility to support the completion of those projects. The loan facility is intended to assist residential builders with cash flow problems, prevent construction company insolvency and boost housing supply. Australians with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer now have access to cheaper treatment. The drug Olaparib, sold under its brand name Linpaza, has now been included under the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. Without subsidy, the treatment can cost patients more than $123,000 per course. 
The listing is expected to help around 200 women each year. Acting Chief of the National Ovarian Cancer Advocacy and Support Services, Bridget Bradhurst, says that people cannot be missing out on the drug that could increase their survival rates. With a drug like this that can delay recurrence and sometimes improve survival, we really don't want to have people missing out. So um, in order for it to be equitable, for all uh, women across Australia, we have to see it listed on the PBS. So that's why this is such significant news for our community. Residents in southeast Queensland are finally set to have power restored after wild weather lashed the area over Christmas and New Year period. Queensland Premier Stephen Miles said the region is now in recovery mode with more Australian Defence Force troops arriving this week to assist the hardest hit areas. More than 130,000 people were hit by blackouts with more than 6,000 still without electricity. But most should be restored by the end of the week with more than 1,000 energy crews on the ground in recent days. More rain is on the way for the southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales on Friday 5th, but the Bureau of Meteorology does not expect a repeat of the wild weather. A child has become the latest fatality on Victorian roads a week into 2024, a head-on collision between two cars travelling around 10 kilometres west of Geelong left one child dead and five others seriously injured. A second child in the same car initially suffered life-threatening upper body injuries, but an Ambulance Victoria spokesperson said the child is now in stable condition. A major collision investigation unit is yet to determine what caused the crash. Investigations are ongoing. The summer drowning toll has risen after a 53-year-old man became the latest fatality on the New South Wales south coast. The man died drowning in a river, taking the national summer toll to more than 40 since December 1st. Emergency services were called to the Yawaka River in Nethercote near Eden about 3pm on Thursday. The 53-year-old man had reportedly been struggling in rough water and police and ambulance paramedics were unable to revive him. The number of summer drownings so far is more than that at the same time last year as Australians flocked to the waterways across the country. Police in Northern Territory have seized a car they believe could be connected to the death of a young 19-year-old man near Alice Springs, whose body was found on remote highway near Andula Station on New Year's Day. Assistant Commissioner Travis Worst says the seized car is a black-coloured dual-cab Ford Ranger ute, which is understood to have been driven driving around Alice Springs during the early morning of New Year's Day through until the early afternoon. He asked the community to come forward with dash cam footage if they saw the car during that time. Any information that anyone has, 
about that vehicle or anything else they're aware of that may relate to this particular tragedy, we ask those members of the public to come forward. All avenues of this investigation are open and we're looking at it objectively. That is why the vehicle is currently being forensically examined. In tennis, Australia has made it through to the United Cup semi-finals after Alex de Menor stunned world number one Novak Djokovic 6-4, 6-4 in straight set defeats. While Djokovic struggled, de, de Menor was on fire from the outset of Wednesday night's match winning 6-4, 6-4 in 93 minutes to give Australia a 1-0 lead in the best-of-three match quarterfinal tie. Dimonor spoke to reporters following his first-ever win over the world number one. I'm never going to be the biggest or the strongest guy, so uh, I've got to adapt. I've got to show that I've got uh, variety in my game and I've got different styles of uh, playing tennis. And... I'm glad I was able to, to bring uh, this level today. Meanwhile, Isla Tomajanovic also secured victory for Australia in a spot in the semi-finals with a 6-1-6-1 win over world number 184, Natalia Stefanovic. In football, Charlotte Grant has completed her first move to Tottenham Hotspur, becoming the latest Australian to join the Women's Super League. The 22-year-old capitalised on the excellent season with Swedish first division side Vetage, with whom she had 23 appearances and two goals in the previous season. Grant was also a member of the Matildas side that took part in the 2020 Olympics. In her first interview as a Spurs player, Grant has made reference to her first goal with the Matildas, which was coincidentally scored against England. It was an incredible moment to um, score my first goal. I think um you know, every time you put on the your national team jersey is, is a huge honour. It's something I've dreamt of ever since I was a little a little girl and to score that goal was um, was incredible. I think that's when I really felt part of the team with um, the response everyone had around me. And that is NITV News wrap-up of the week. Welcome back. You're listening to NITV Radio. Coming up, NITV Radio Saka Pachova speaks with Sharon Davis, the newest board member of the Aurora Education Foundation, touching on deep commitment to social justice, life journey, and helping Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth feel supported and find success. But first, let's take a look at some of the stories from NITV News Team Samiyan series, looking back on the deadly stories of individuals and communities from around Australia in the past year, 2023. An ancient woman's story from the Pilbara community of Roeburn in northern WA this year made its debut as a stage play at the Perth Festival. The show has taken years to come to fruition and features generations of women from teenagers through to elders. Left there on the banks of the 40s. Pankaliara, or sister-in-law dreaming, shares the stories of Nalama and Injabandi women. As the power flow. Emerging elder Michelle Adams is the director. 
She says the stories have been passed on for 60,000 years. Sister-in-law dreaming, oh, it's a deep cultural story uh, related to women and particular uh, women's ceremony and dance um, within Injibandi culture. The group has spent many years working on country with the young performers, teaching them their language and culture. It's deep, long, expensive work. Uh, but the entire practice of Bungaliara, as that you see, is those young women engaging and learning from their elders. Um, and we are guiding them. They, we learn from them too. Young people teach us as well. And there's no better example than this rap penned by the troupe's youngest performer. Modern beats and ancient songlines. The show brings generations together. Really important to share our culture and our language with the younger generations so they can teach the other generations. A showcase of culture and learning. Karen Cox, NITV News. From the red carpet to catwalks across the country, First Nations fashion has been in the spotlight this year with Indigenous creators showcasing their deadly designs at a range of events. And there was no bigger stage than Australian Fashion Week, with Indigenous designers, models and artists all playing starring roles. Indigenous designers in the spotlight, with First Nations culture front and centre on the runway. Indigenous fashion projects returning with a show called Future Dreaming. It brings together a diverse collective of contemporary Indigenous fashion labels. The experience has been like a dream come true. Uh, fashion Week is truly the mecca of the Australian fashion industry and so be able to showcase my business, Lazy Girl Laundry, um, has been incredible and such an honour. Uh, First Nations, I think, oftentimes we can be put in a box that we look like this um, in so many different ways and I think... This show tonight will absolutely showcase that we've all got something different to say, but at the same time we have that shared um, you know, community as mob coming together and uniting um, in this show, so it's beautiful. Indigenous Fashion Projects is an initiative launched by the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair Foundation. All of the designers featured have been a part of IFP's Pathway Program, developing and showcasing everything from lingerie and swimwear to ready-to-wear high fashion. It's been really great to see um, the nurturing of designers and creatives from the beginning, from a grassroots level, and then following through that process leading up to Australian Fashion Week. So it's great to see, um, yeah, that support and you know encouragement on all levels. It's just one of many First Nations runways across the week, all for the purpose of ensuring a better and more inclusive fashion industry in Australia. Ricky Kirby, NITV News. One man's dream of providing a skate park for kids in a remote central Australian community this year finally became a reality. The facility cost almost half a million dollars, with the community stepping in to help fund the project. Ginger Porter or Santa Teresa is about an hour's drive southeast of Alice Springs, a community coming together to celebrate its collective commitment to future generations. 
The skate park has been years in the making. It's the brainchild of Eastern Arundel man Nicky Hayes, owner of Spinifex Skateboards and local youth mentor. We have the basketball court and we have the oval here. Why not we have an outdoor skate park? I mean, it's a no-brainer, but um, it could be a lot of benefits as well for young people and families to come down and you know like share some quality time but also kids just being to, to come out and be active and there was no skating around the issue overwhelming support saw the community offer up income from its leasing fund to pay for half the project well it's very important because we need to entertain kids and the next generation and all that encourages them you know to move on and um be strong for the community because they're the next generation. These initiatives have been run by the community, paid for by the community, and it's there for the benefit of the community, but most importantly, for the children. The skate park now is a shining example with other communities now set to follow. It's certainly not going to solve 100% of social issues. Um, I don't know what possibly could, but to have a space where kids can be kids, have joy, mentoring, support each other, progression, I think it's, it's amazing to see it. Ginger Porter hopes to soon hold a skateboarding competition for locals and visitors. A leap of faith from a remote community on a roll. Guy McLean, NITV News. In La Truida, Tasmania, a winemaker is preparing for bushfires by asking a local Aboriginal group to do a cultural burn. The vineyard is about an hour's drive south of Nipilanya Hobart at Flowerpot. Those lighting the fires are caring for country and themselves, with the burning helping them connect with ancient knowledge, wisdom and culture. In southern Tasmania, a partnership between ancient culture and modern winemaking is underway. James Shaw and his team from the South East Tasmanian Aboriginal Corporation, or SeaTac, are doing a cultural burn in the bush at Dirk Muir's vineyard and house. In respect of cultural burning, we're more focused on what the bush needs and what we need um, to heal the country as well as ourselves. The burning has been going on slowly, at low heat in stages, clearing away thick bush. So this is about the height of what we were burning. The aim is to reduce the fuel load without harming native animals. So while we're doing it, we're on country, we're experiencing the bush, we're um, helping Mother Nature do its job, um, we're still removing fuels, we're still re- reducing risk and not reducing diversity. Dirk Muir has spent 25 years growing grapes on this land. He's called on ancient knowledge to manage the bushfire risk. The first inhabitants of Tasmania used to live on these these shores and protected and looked after the land. Uh, I wanted to honour that uh, presence and also to uh, have the benefit of that wisdom. SeaTac is doing cultural burning not just here on this vineyard, but many other private properties around Hobart. This burn is igniting cultural connection in the next generation. Growing up, I found out my mother was taken off her parents in a hospital um, over in the mainland, and I never got to grow up with my culture. So being here, I get to learn, I get to connect with my community. 
a chance to care for country and each other. Felicity Ogilvie, NRTV News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. I'm your host, Nairi Pakai, and you're listening to NITV Radio. Leading Indigenous education non-profit, the Aurora Education Foundation, has new board members, and one of them is Sharon Davis, is joining us on NITV Radio. Sharon Davis is a director, education consultant, Oxford scholar and honorary research fellow. Sharon brings a deep commitment to social justice, having previously worked as the director at AATSIS. Sharon spoke to NITV Radio's Saka Pachova. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure as well. Can you please tell us a bit more about where you are from and who your people are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm being into this uh, interview on Ghana country, the unceded lands of the Ghana people in South Australia. But for, for me and my people, I am a non-binary um, Barad Gidja person. So my people are from the Kimberley up uh, north of Broome and most of my family uh, all still live in the Kimberley and Broome actually apart from my sister but yeah that's my mob from up that way. I'm very lucky to be sitting here in the beautiful sun on Ghana country speaking to you guys. <laughs> Amazing. So what what is the your vision to you're bringing to Aurora Foundation? Oh, I am so proud. Actually, I'm I'm very fresh. I've only been a board member now for a few months, but I've had a long relationship with the Aurora Education Foundation. Um, in terms of the vision that I bring to Aurora, I guess uh, it's kind of lucky because my vision is very similar to Aurora's vision. My vision is also founded by self-determination. Um, like you mentioned before, I, I, I'm the co-founder of Grulil. We're a small consulting company where we use an anti-racist and gender-affirming lens to support people and organisations to better engage with First Nations and gender-diverse people and content. And at uh, my company, we our primary principle is that of self-determination as well, and that underpins all of our work. So I bring um, that sort of vision to my work on the board at Aurora. It's a good, it's a good pairing, I think. Mm-hmm. And what was your main motivation to join Aurora's board? I guess my main motivation to join join Aurora as I was thinking about the different boards that I'm on, I'm on a couple of different boards, but the Aurora Education Foundation has played such a pivotal role in um, my education journey. And like most mob, it's important that we give back. We're, as Indigenous peoples, we're reciprocal just by our very nature and it's an obligation and something that we all must do. So I really want to give back and hopefully can support other young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, not necessarily young, I was a mature age student, but young, you know, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and people wanting to get the best out of life and best out of education that they can and help overcome any barriers that our people may face when it comes to uh, getting the education that we want and that we deserve. So if I can give back in any way, um, then that will be a good thing. That's beautiful. I'm on two other boards. So I'm on the board of Reconciliation Australia with an education with my education hat on. And that's when in terms of education it is more uh, it's about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, ways of being and doing. So that's where Reconciliation Week and we help with reconciliation and education. But I'm also on the board of the Stronger Smarter Institute, which is about education for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, young people, children and young people. So 
be able to be um, on the board of the Aurora Education Foundation ties that into quite a nice little bow because it supports young people from the beginning of their school journey all the way through to university and post-degree post studies. So if I can give support in a way that I didn't have, I'm you know, one of those uh, first in family, None of, neither of my parents have been to university, nobody in my immediate family had been to university. So I didn't have those expertise or someone to turn to to say, you know, how do I write an essay? How do, how do I apply for university? So if I can offer that to other young people, I would like to make the journey a little less hard than what it was for me. But also as a gay and genderqueer person, I can bring an intersectional lens to the important work of the organisation. I think that's missing in a lot of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education discourse. We do talk a lot about race and racism. We talk about um, cultural appropriateness and we talk about cultural responsiveness. But we tend to miss that gender and sexuality diversity. And I can bring that intersectional lens to this space, which I think is important for our uh, queer black young people. Hmm. Hmm. You mentioned it before. You you had challenges in your own journey, but in the end, you studied at Oxford University, which is amazing. Can you tell us more about your journey and about this experience? Yeah, sure. Um, I I was gosh, going back now, I feel old telling this yarn. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was a mature age student in Broome. I studied at the University of Notre Dame in Broome, um, my primary school teaching degree back in, gosh, 2010, I think I started. And I had two little kids and I was living up on country and I found that doing my teaching degree in Broome was just such a game changer because I, I could incorporate all my ways of being and knowing and on country into the learning that I was doing about being a teacher and out of that I was really interested in understanding more about Aboriginal English which is a dialect of English that over 80% of Aboriginal people in this country speak um, and as a result of doing that kind of study and loving it and having a culturally safe place in which to learn I did really well and then somebody said to me you should apply for that Aurora study tour that goes around the world and I was like as if I'm never going to get into that I, you know I'm just this person in broom um and then my one of my lecturers really encouraged me so I applied and I was very surprised to be accepted into that and then from that I ended up um going on the study tour and um seeing all these different universities these Ivy League universities around the world and I, I I've told this story a number number of times because it's so it's still so vivid to me over a decade later, sitting in at a lecture at Harvard and having my only experience of Harvard being the, of that Goodwill Hunting movie, mm -hmm. even there at Harvard. <laughs> and I was sitting there and I was sitting in a lecture and I hadn't, hadn't done any readings or anything, but I remember sitting there thinking, I could actually answer the question that this lecturer is asking at Harvard. What the hell? How can I have the, I could actually go to one of these universities. So in the end, I ended up applying for um, NYU, New York University and Oxford. I was accepted into both, which was mind blowing. I, you know, almost, I pretty, pretty much failed high school <laughs> and being accepted into both and choosing Oxford, um, I would never have even thought that was possible if it wasn't for the um, Aurora study tour. So, you know, that's, as a result now, it's helped me along my way. I've I've worked at quite high levels in the public service. I've now run my own consulting business trying to help educators to do better, know better and do better in their classrooms. So mm. I'm very grateful. That's my journey with Aurora. It's an amazing journey. Can we sum up what the main challenges are that Indigenous children and young people are facing when it comes to education? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think... 
there's a there's a number of different um, challenges that young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids face. The main one uh, is racism at the end of the day that underpins a lot of the issues that we face, our young people face. At the end of the day, education systems are not made for us. They're not made for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We we work hard to fit into those systems that are a lot of the time really quite oppressive um, and really hard for our kids to, to navigate and to go through. So um, particularly if you're only one of the few Aboriginal kids in your school, which can be kind of tricky. So one of the things that I think is really good that Aurora does to alleviate that, well, in, in my experience when I was talking about um, sort of studying overseas, is that in a place where there's not many mob, Aurora helps to create a community. So when I studied in Oxford, there were, gosh, I think four or five other um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around Oxford and Cambridge and London who we had our own little community to support ourselves through. And then the support that we got back from the organisation while we were studying helped build that community. Um, in terms of high school kids, Oh, I forgot to mention, when I came back from Oxford, I actually was the Western Australian State Coordinator for the high school program, one of the Aurora programs, and we ran that. I ran that for about a year. But during that, what, again, going back to community, is we helped to create a sense of community. So this program back then follows a cohort of around 20 to 25 Aboriginal kids, Indigenous kids from, say, year seven, I think it is, all the way up to... Uh, their first year of university. So you have the same cohort, little sense of community all the way through, following you through and supporting you through until you get to university, which was a bit of a game changer because being able to have that sense of, you know, you've got your own community as mob, you've got your, um, in Perth, for example, the Noongar community, um, but also to have that common understanding of what it's like as a student at that age, the age, your peers around you, going through similar things all the way through school to high school to university, having that sense of community around you is, was was deadly. So there's some of the ways that we can navigate those problems like racism or like unfair things that happen in schools. You're not the only one experiencing it and that can be powerful knowing that you're not the only one. That was Sharon Davis, new board member of Aurora Education Foundation. Stay tuned for part two after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to NITV Radio. And now the second part of the interview with new board member Sharon Davis. Sharon talks to Saka Pachova about her experience at Oxford University and the support that Aurora provides for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. When you study away, um, so one of the things when I when I was doing my university degree in Broome, I did have a sense of community, so that was okay. Mm-hmm. But when I left, um, it was it's quite daunting. It's scary, you know. Let alone being in England, uh, in the UK, you know, the place of the place of largely a lot of colonisation that is still ongoing around the world. To be in that space as the only Aboriginal person, you know, in your department, for example, it's quite daunting. But at the same time, um, it's also a little bit freeing to be able to be yourself um, as a person studying instead of Mm. having to carry all that sort of uh, racism that comes with it too. In saying that, I don't think I would have ever have got through it without that sense of community that Aurora helped build with my colleagues, my peers, the other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scholars who studied over in the UK at the same time as me. That Mm. was invaluable. Mm. What would be your message for Indigenous youth who are listening to us and maybe are facing difficulties or maybe are, you know, deciding where to take their educational journey? 
Yeah. Oh gosh, that's a really good question. I guess, I guess we we know for young people to know that you're not alone, and that there have been lots of amazing Aboriginal educators throughout the years who have stood up for us to even be in the position that we're in now. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants is a common saying, but it's absolutely true. We've got amazing Aboriginal educators. You can have a look at even just the successes of the people who have come out of the Aurora, if we're talking about Aurora more specifically, um, the alumni that's come out of the Aurora Education Foundation. We've got a whole heap of educators. We've got people who are doing um, medicine to do with cancer. We've got uh, epidemiologists. We've got maths geniuses. We've got all these amazing, clever um black excellence um, examples that we can look up to, our young people can look up to and aspire to be like, you know, that old saying, you can't be what you can't see. There's lots of black excellence of what you can see and hopefully our young people can look up and decide that's what they want to be, which is why I think education is essential. I've said it before and, uh, you know, education is essential to our freedom and I really mean that. I think that when you can understand and know and you're able to label the oppression that is implicit in the institutions that we have to engage in, like the education system, we can find less harmful ways to navigate that space together. You actually answered my last question because it was ah. <laughs> <laughs> that you wrote about education is essential for our freedom that that oh, yes. you've learned it as Aboriginal person. So, yeah, that's that's a beautiful message. Yeah, I think and talking about self-determination earlier is one of the founding principles of my small business and also of Aurora. If we have education, we can determine new ways to be, you know, new ways to learn. We can put in place strategies that can help us reach these new imaginings. And if we actually truly believe in self-determination, that means letting go and in some cases fighting against the education systems that are harming our kids. I guess being educated about education means that We are in a much better position to make informed decisions about where we can choose to send our children, what they learn, how they learn it, and imagine a future where we determine our own success. Um, that's self-determination in education for me, and that's a huge reason why um, I'm very excited to be part of the board of the Aurora Education Foundation. Thank you so much, Sharon, for talking to us about your journey and about being on board of Aurora. Thanks very much for having me. That was Sharon Davis, new board member of Aurora Education Foundation, talking to NITV Radio's Saka Pachova. And that's all we have time for today's program. You can listen back to the program anytime online or catch any of the stories on our website at sbs.com.au. NITV Radio will be back next week with more stories from right across the country. I'm your host, Nari Pakai, and have a great weekend. People's